0: There's a first century follower of Christ whose name was Paul. He was an extremely strategic person for the spread of early Christianity. Uh, Tim Keller, New York City's Yoda, said that Paul targeted metropolitan areas for church planting. Paul was also willing to go to these cities' academic centers where they were hostile to the gospel and debate. So he's debating in New York City and church planning in Los Angeles. He's leaving a church plan in the first century equivalent of Tokyo and Shanghai and London. In other words, Paul wasn't city negative. A lot of people don't like cities. God may call you to a city. Tim Keller said he and his wife Kathy moved to New York City out of duty, not out of love for the city. When he told her, I think we need to plant in NYC. She responded, You want to take our children who are victims of below, averaging, below average parenting to crime infested New York City to reach those yuppies? But really, why should you care about cities? It's crowded and traffic is horrible. Well, here's one reason there's more imago day, it's Latin for image of God, there's more imago day per inch in cities than anywhere else. Most ancient cities, Paul's day, were, were estimated to be between five and ten acres in size, containing an average of 240 residents per acre. 240 residents per acre. By comparison, the island of Manhattan in present-day New York City houses only 105 residents per acre. And that's with high rises. So these biblical cities were crowded. Uh, Historically, people of the world move into the great cities of the world many times faster than the church does. So Paul goes to large influential cities. He knows he can reach the villages through the cities. You You can't reach the city from the suburbs, but you can reach the suburbs from the city. Now you may have this picture in your mind of Paul just hanging out in his lofty intellectual ivory towers and not being able to communicate with the average man but that wasn't the case. It's true that to New York City, he was Tim Keller. To Harvard University, he was Ravi Zacharias. But it's also true that to Decatur, Georgia, he was J. Vernon McGee. To Ames, Iowa, he was Billy Sunday. In fact, there's a, a theologian named Ecknart Schnabel. <clears throat> it's quite a name. You should name your child that. You were looking for a name in the sign Here's the sign. Egnard Chabel, and he wrote a book, Paul the Missionary. And he argues against Keller that Paul didn't only target major cities. He says that's an overstatement of Paul's strategy because, frankly, Paul didn't have a strategy. Paul went where people were and where he had an opportunity to share the gospel. And that led him to cities, but also to smaller towns and villages. So whether Paul went to intellectual city centers like Ephesus or small small towns in southern Galatia, he always left one thing in his wake. A local church. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Because the best evangelist in the known world, the best evangelist to cities, the best evangelist to small towns, the best evangelist in the world is now in prison. He's no longer debating in the intellectual capitals of the world. He's no longer drinking a glass bottle Coca-Cola and eating a moon pie in a small town in North Carolina and evangelizing while he does it. What will Christianity do with its Rambo out of commission? How will it ever survive? Paul's incarcerated. He's chained. The gospel is shut down. Church planning is debilitated. Paul can't be replaced. He's indispensable. No one can fill his shoes. And it's here that I'd just like to remind you that Christianity doesn't ride or die on any man. Whether he falls into prison or falls into sin, God's gospel will advance with or without him. And no church is dependent on one person or one couple. Not these churches and not this church. In the first church I pastored, we had a couple of influential families leave. I don't remember why. Probably because I changed something in the bulletin or took away their little pet project. But in a deacon's meeting, the men looked at me and said, Kyle, how are we going to make it? I said, if you think this church only survived because of those people, you have lost your mind. Lift your head, speak with confidence, play the man. This church is built on Jesus Christ and Jesus only. A couple months later, wow, you, you were right. We're marching forward without them. Friends, Christianity doesn't rise or fall on Paul, and FFC doesn't rise or fall on me always being behind this pulpit. Preachers come and go, but the sovereign never dies. R.C. Sprouls and Ravi Zacharias is come and go. But the creator of the universe doesn't wring his hands and wonder who will step up next. He always has his man. He always has his couple. He always has his up-and-coming pioneers. The only person that is indispensable is Jesus Christ. Now, why was this seemingly indispensable Paul in prison? Did he hit someone with his chariot? Did he throw trash out of his buggy? Did he walk into Target unmasked? (laughs) No, he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And one of the church plants, one of his church plants, the church at Philippi, wanted to know how he was doing, how his heart was, how his spirit was, and how in the world the work of God was going to go forward without him. So Paul writes these verses to answer those questions. Now, typically, I give you the truth and then unpack it. That's my usual rhythm. I say, here's truth number one, and you're like, where did that come from? And then I walk through three verses, and you're like, oh, I I see it now. I'm not doing that today. I want to arrive at the truths. I want to walk through the verses and let the truths sneak up on us. Paul says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that, let's pause. In the first century, when people wrote letters to inform friends of their circumstances, the transition from the initial greeting to the letter's crucial information was often made with the statement, I want you to know that. Uh, I can give you a historical example of that type of letter. There was a young soldier named Theonis writing to his mother from his military encampment, and this is what he wrote. Theonis... To his mother and lady, Tethius, very many greetings. I want you to know that the reason I have not sent you a letter for such a long time is because I am in camp and not on account of illness. So do not worry yourself. So we know that something very important is coming after. I want you to know that. What's coming after? He continues, verse 12. What has happened to me? Stop. What has happened to Paul? Well, currently he's in prison. And he was in prison for so many times for the same thing, it's hard to tell which imprisonment it was. Uh, Many preachers take a hard stance on it, and their theories need to be drenched with a cold bucket of exegetical reality. No one knows exactly which imprisonment this was. But we know that he's in jail. And he's not rotting in a rat-infested dungeon. This was more of a house arrest with... An ankle bracelet. What happened before this current house arrest experience? Well, Paul experienced multiple near-death floggings, a gruesome stoning, an assassination attempt. Forty Jewish men took an oath that they would not eat or drink until they killed Paul. That night, 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen go after him. Just en route to Rome, Paul endured a crazy, dangerous voyage that included a storm and a shipwreck. All the passengers had to swim for their lives to the shore. As these water-soaked passengers huddle around a fire built by local villagers, Paul himself brings an armload of sticks to put on the fire. And as he does, a poisonous snake that had been scooped up with the firewood bites him, literally clinging to his hand. Even here, as he's writing, he awaits the emperor's decision. The spectrum of possible outcomes range from vindication to condemnation, which also follows execution. Paul says, all this that has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The the word really could also be translated rather It shows that Paul felt what he was writing could come as a surprise to the Philippians. You thought this would halt the gospel? Rather, it advanced it. You thought this would stop the gospel? Rather, it propelled it. And the Greek word for advance was used of someone cutting away trees and undergrowth so that a path could be made. Literally, this is what he's saying. The heartache, the pain, the tears, the tragedy cleared a path. For the gospel to walk, Paul looks back over all his experiences and declares, What happened to me served to advance the gospel. Now, what is he doing? He is awakening others to the purpose of his circumstances. And it's here that I'll drop the first truth God uses your circumstances. To further his gospel. Now, if you're anything like me, your mood flourishes and withers depending on your circumstances. If your health is good and others appreciate you and there's some money in the bank, those happy circumstances bear fruit in your sunny outlook on life. But when things go wrong, whether from a cold or cancer or criticism, your spirits plummet. And you may be inclined to think. That of course Paul could view his circumstances that way, but but you could never. Wrong. You can, but you must discipline yourself. Discipline yourself in this area. Don't throw yourself a pity party. Throw yourself a gospel party. Pity parties call attention to yourself. Your chains, your shipwrecks, your hurts. And I think verse 12 is one of, if not the most, outward-looking verses in the New Testament. Notice the undramatic way Paul mentions his wrongs. He does not elaborate on his discomforts. I had to go to Acts to find out what those were. He relates the horrible circumstances with such a light touch. You would even question if they were really that bad. Paul makes us look at the handcuffs, not at the wrists which they chafed and bruised. He's refusing the way of self-pity. You know how to throw a gospel party? You preach to yourself. You preach to yourself that my feelings and my aspirations must kneel before the gospel. But my plan and my dream was to... Well, she said this, and he implied this. D.A. Carson, the Canadian theologian, said, Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. You never know how God might be using your uncomfortable situation to advance his gospel. Do not put your circumstances at the center of your world. Put the gospel as the center. God never wastes your circumstances. You're too precious to your heavenly father for him to waste your pain and suffering. He always has gospel purposes in your difficulties. And, And what some of you are going through is probably best described like this. You're standing in a kitchen... And someone opens the the cupboard and takes a glass out and drops it on the floor. It shatters. Pieces are everywhere. Then another glass, it shatters. Then another glass, and another. And you're pondering how you're ever going to put the pieces back together and the glasses back in the cupboard? And I just want to remind you that your broken glass is not beyond the artistry of God. You see no beauty in the scattered pieces? Maybe you need one who can open your eyes to see the circumstances as God sees them. Now, how has Paul's circumstances specifically, specifically his circumstances, how have they advanced the gospel? Notice verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard... And to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that Paul had an ankle bracelet. It was more like a soldier bracelet. He slept chained to a Roman soldier. He wrote chained to a Roman soldier. He ate chained to a Roman soldier. And they were in somewhat close proximity, maybe 18 inches or less. And every six hours, the shift changed Giving Paul four different soldiers in a day. The Imperial Guard was also known as the Praetorium Guard, constituted of 9,000 elite soldiers. And they were handpicked for their military skill. They were personally, their job was to personally protect the Emperor and the Imperial family. Basically, they were the President's Secret Service. And membership was much sought after because they received better working conditions, double pay. In fact, Stephen Davies says they receive nearly $100,000 a year in today's economy. They also receive pensions. He says totaling in today's economy nearly $1 million. Quite a job. Quite a job. And Paul, Paul, this great ambassador, is no longer free to range over land and sea with the good news of Christ. But he has not ceased to be an ambassador he is now an ambassador in chains. And the secret service agents would hear Paul speak to other Christians who visited him, and after the guests left, the agents would sit beside Paul, filled with many questions as to the meaning of the words which this strange prisoner spoke. In fact, they were chained to him as he wrote this letter. Paul isn't complaining about not being able to labor in some ripe mission field like Spain. He's not complaining about his chains. He's consecrating his chains to God. Paul took advantage of this captive audience, and he preached the words of life to possibly, when you consider how long his imprisonment was and and four soldiers a day, possibly over a thousand of them on a rotating basis. And many of them were converted. A revival broke out in the Secret Service detail. Now, what house do these men typically guard when they're not chained to Paul? Nero's house. So the gospel has spread all the way to the guards who guard Nero's house. Through Paul's imprisonment, God opened the doors into the halls of power to which Paul could have never have gained access as a free citizen. I'm just imagining the the church prayer meetings in Rome on Wednesday nights. As they pray, oh God, help us somehow to reach Nero's household. Help us somehow to reach the elite secret service agents. Help us to get the gospel to, into the high places. God says, it's already in the works. See, Paul believes what Jesus said in Matthew 16. That Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The apostle knows that the gospel cannot be stopped. It reached the Secret Service agents. And then, notice in the verse, it reached all the rest. The gospel went to the government officials and attorneys. And when you step back, I know, what, I know what some of you are thinking already. Well, Kyle, you're just saying that Paul's a stoic. See, the stoic theory taught adherents to steel themselves against life's disappointments through aloof indifference and emotional disengagement. No, no. Paul invites us to take these things and look them in the face. He did not see his suffering as an act of divine forgetfulness. Why did God allow this to happen to me? Nor as a dismissal from service. Well, I was looking forward to years of usefulness, but now look at me. Nor as a work of Satan. Well, I'm afraid that the devil has had his way this time. No. Paul saw this as a task appointed. God allows hard things to happen to even his most strategic people. Substitute the word imprisonment in verse 13 with what you're going through. My blank is for Christ. Your tears are God's tools to draw you to himself and to advance his gospel. Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now you've got to understand, governments in this day, they inflicted severe punishment on lawbreakers to deter others from following their example. Heavy sentences and harsh treatment in custody are supposed to send a signal that criminal behavior has unpleasant consequences. And now, for some strange reason, there are some who want to imitate the behavior that got Paul arrested. Paul's stint under house arrest was a stimulus to the church. Christians were stirred up to a bolder and more effective preaching. Paul's Prison sentence is setting other people free from fear. Free to put their own lives on the line for the message of Christ. F- fear, have we learned, if we've learned anything in the last six months, fear is contagious. But don't you ever forget, so is courage. Persecuted Christians often, often inspire otherwise timid Christians. It continues in verse 15. This is where it gets a little dark. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. See, in that verse, we have Paul's friends and Paul's haters. There were Paulinists and anti-Paulinists. And that leads us to our second truth. God uses people who like you and people who do not like you, to further his gospel. And the first thing I want you to notice here is that they are preaching the same message. Both groups are preaching Christ. Paul's haters aren't heretics. They aren't Judaizers. They aren't Gnostics. They aren't false religionists of any kind. They aren't idol worshipers. They aren't those who attach Christianity to Greek mythology. These were gospel-preaching haters. They could sign Paul's doctrinal statement, and he could sign theirs. Paul and his haters are using the same sermon notes, the same study Bible, reading after the same commentators. Through the years, men like Lightfoot and Silver have said that these haters were some cult, some Christ-plus group, some breakaway group, but that's not the case They were not heretics or apostates. They were not preaching another gospel. They were not preaching another Christ. If they had been, Paul would have said, as he did to the Galatians, let them be accursed. Paul damned pseudo-gospels in his ministry. He called false teachers troublers and dogs. But friends, that's not happening here. They were not anti Christ. They were simply anti-Paul. So these two groups have the same message but different motives. His haters preached out of envy. We we sang the word envy in one of the songs. It's an ugly word. They were jealous. Say jealous of what? I'll tell you what they were jealous of. They were jealous of Paul's giftedness. They were jealous of Paul's success. Paul took the gospel to Asia Minor and on into Europe, fighting Judaizers and heretics all the way, and he won. And the focus of the worldwide church was on Paul. He has a huge platform. What what, what did the kids say today? He's trending. He's gone viral. His TikTok channel blew up. His Instagram followers everywhere. His books are selling, conferences selling out. And some of the leadership turned green with envy and began a contentious gospel rivalry. The Greek word for envy refers to not only wanting something someone else has, but actually wishing that person harm. They wanted to cause his ministry harm. They began throwing rocks. One linguist wrote about the next word, rivalry, that it relates to political maneuvering and election intrigue. Preachers playing politics. These preachers were petty, territorial, calculated, focused on self-promotion. John Claypool said in his 1979 Yale lecture on preaching, he said, "I I can recall going to state and national conventions in our denominations, and coming home feeling drained and unclean. Because most of the conversations in the hotel rooms and the halls were characterized either by envy of those doing well or scarcely concealed delight for those who were doing poorly. For did that not mean that someone was about to fall and thus create an opening up the ladder? Verse 17 The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. The words selfish ambition were only found before New Testament times in Aristotle's writings. He he used it to refer to someone pursuing a political office by evil means. The worse it went for Paul, the better it went for them. If his ministry fails... Theirs will succeed. They looked at Paul's ministry as an opportunity to tear him down and elevate their ministry over his. The imprisonment. It's an opportunity to tear him down and elevate their ministry over his. With Paul out of the spotlight, his donors could become their donors. They could sweep into the vacuum and steal some followers. Verse 17 continues, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They were detractors. A detractor is a person who belittles or devalues a person's reputation. They wanted to humiliate Paul by slinging mud. Saying things like, Paul's imprisonment could be the Lord's punishment for some secret sin. Or, you know, it's really good that Paul's in prison because it keeps his inadequate mishandling of God's word from people. Or, well, Paul's a bit old-fashioned, and a more relevant approach is needed to reach the Roman culture. Others would have claimed that the very fact that they were free to preach and Paul was in prison was proof that God is finished with him, and now he's going to use them instead. What is Paul doing? He's wiping mud off his face. It's a hard day for him. We know from history that prison had a huge stigma attached to it. And much of that, I think, has remained until this day. One historian writes, Paul was certainly aware that his incarceration reflected negatively on his credibility. Prison was a place of dishonor. And considerable pressure was exerted on those who knew a prisoner to treat him with revulsion and or to abandon him entirely which is what most of Paul's friends did. One group thought his chains were a disgrace. The other group thought his chains were a grace. And how does he respond to this? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What then? That could be translated, so what? What does it matter? In other words, what does it really matter if I'm loved or hated? God put me here, this is his assignment for me. Paul doesn't play their game, instead, he applauds their effort. As long as they're truly preaching Christ, he really does not care who gets the credit or who gets the converts. Now, this is a man who was made subject of unjust, unprovoked insult and shame. Malicious misrepresentation. Was he not hurt by what they were saying? Of course he was. But he does not dwell on what they did to him. He resisted revenge. For Paul, the advance of the gospel overrides everything else. Everything in Paul's life is submitted to this end. And if we fail to understand this, we fail to understand Paul. Karl Barth said, An answer to the question how it is with Paul, the apostle must react with information as to how it is with the gospel. You could not separate the two. Paul says, I've decided that I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is preached, and so I just cheer them on. Now granted, Paul would have preferred to have both message and motive be pure. But he placed the highest importance on the message. A preacher with a jealous, envious, selfish motive... Can still be used of God, and I tell you why. Because the power, as John Eddy, the old commentator, used to say, the power lies in the gospel, not the gospeler. It lies in what is preached, not the preacher. The gospel has inherent power outside of the one voicing it. The gospel can proceed from good motives or selfish motives. It, it really doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't matter if Jimmy Olsen holds the kryptonite. Or Lex Luther holds the kryptonite. It's dangerous, and this gospel is powerful. Four applications to take us home. Application number one. How will this passage help you respond to critics? How will this passage help you respond to critics? Will you, like Paul, ever hear criticism? Will you ever feel the wet sting of mud? Will you ever be the subject of misunderstanding? No, no, the question is not will you experience it? The question is what will you do when it happens? When fellow Christians tighten the shackles on your wrists rather than seek to alleviate your pain, you should remember Paul's perspectives. Your joy is connected to the advancement of the gospel, not in the view that others have towards you. You can you can face any criticism if your joy is connected to the advancement of the gospel, and not others' view of you. Application number two. How will this passage help you to avoid envy and jealousy? Is your heart tainted with competition and envy? Do you need to be set free from a feverish quest to be the best, to be the first, to gain recognition? Do you rejoice when your friends succeed? Do you deep down resent it when others are praised? Does it bother you when others receive more recognition than you? See, you can let Jesus permeate your message, but not permeate your life. There's a story. It's not a Bible story, but it grows out of the 4th century. And there were some inexperienced demons. And they were finding it difficult to afflict a certain godly preacher. They lured him with various temptations, but he kept denying their allurements. And the demon reported the problem to Satan, and Satan suggested a more effective strategy. He said, send him a message that his brother has just been made bishop in Antioch. Bring him good news. The demons used the scheme and reported the good news to the pastor. And on hearing the news, the pastor fell into deep, wicked jealousy. It's impossible to be full of envy and humility. It's impossible to be full of rivalry and goodwill. You just want good for that person. If God has pointed out envy and rivalry in your soul today, what a grace. Repent and move forward in mercy. Application number three. How will this passage help you to see that God can use your hard times for the advance of his gospel? And I think a historical story may, um, may help us here. John Bunyan. John Bunyan's rise to become a popular preacher was something for the history books. The authorities didn't like him or his message and they wanted to silence him. So they actually threw him in Bedford Jail. But it didn't work. He he not only attracted large audiences of inmates, but hundreds of people in Bedford, England, would show up on the Lord's Day, stand outside the prison compound in order to hear him expound the Scriptures. Finally, the official silenced him once and for all by placing him deep inside the jail in isolation. The greatest evangelist of the day, now in prison. Bunyan's incarcerated, he's chained, the gospel is shut down, his plans shattered, his passions unfulfilled. Yet there in the solitude and silence, John Bunyan would end up speaking louder and further than anyone would ever imagine. In the inner recesses of that prison, John decided to write a book. A book that would eventually sell like wildfire. Ask John Bunyan and he'd tell you his plans and passions were to pastor and to to preach. Not to write a book from prison. Yet his writing far exceeded the reach of any of his sermons. And that little book entitled Pilgrim's Progress would go on to reach the hearts of tens of millions of people. And if you were to ask Bunyan at different stages in his own life how things were going, he'd probably tell you things aren't going well at all. In fact, I see no forward progress, no advancing. During one of his incarcerations, his wife died, leaving him with four children. One of them was born blind. He would eventually marry again, and his wife would write a letter to a friend that they had neither bowl nor spoon between them. Only, 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 only near the end of his life did John Bunyan realize that his greatest contribution for the gospel came out of isolation and difficulty and reversals of plans and dreams. And if you've lived long enough in the faith, you've discovered that God often moves his gospel forward by putting you in reverse. Only later do you realize that what you thought was going backward, away from the goal, was actually moving you forward toward God's better goal, which brought him greater glory and for you a deeper maturity and trust. Now, I know you, church. I know, I know you believe this generally. But I want you to believe this specifically. So I'll say it one more time and ask God to write it on your heart. God could be moving his gospel forward by putting you in reverse. Application number four. I told, um, I told the first service I was going to skip this one, but I think I need to do it. How might this passage help you understand pastors and their struggles better? Philippians was a book written by a pastor to a church governed by pastors. And it talks a lot about pastors. We have former pastors in our church, current ones and future ones. And may it always be this way. I pray that our church would be full of pastors. Actually, I have a specific number. 300 of them. I would love to have 300 pastors here. To start churches, fill pulpits, extend our ministry here and around the world. There's a couple things you need to know about pastors. The first one is this. Pastors need encouragement. I used to be a lot more critical of pastors until I became one. <laughs> now when I see a sincere gospel pastor, I just, I just want to hug them. I've never seen more broken pastors than I see right now. I've never had more defeated pastors text me than I have texting me right now. I've never had more crying pastors call me than the ones that are calling me right now. Church attendance has been lower than it's ever been. People leaving them left and right. These pastors can't make the right decision. They make the decision to require masks for COVID. And half the church thinks they are a compromiser. Other pastors make the decision not to require masks and they have families leave the church over it. Pastors are going through a hard time right now. It's probably just on my heart because I'm facing it every single week, talking to them. I mean, these are pastors who are carrying around their resignation letter in their pockets. And in dark moments, contemplating suicide. And they need encouragement. And, and I'm trying to be that for my pastor friends. I want to encourage you to reach out to a pastor this week. You know, This is why I want to skip it. This is why I want to skip it. You know why Paul wrote Philippians? Because the church at Philippi reached out to him. And you're saying, you're, "This is really about you, isn't it, Kyle?" <laughs> this is not. I'm really fine. But there are a lot of men who aren't doing well right now. And I'll talk about just beating around the bush, but I'm, I'm tired of doing that. <clears throat> let me just let you let me just let you into uh, the day of a life of a pastor. I never receive a call with good news. Ever. I know every time my phone vibrates, it's bad news. Now, I don't mind it. I'm called to it. I love to get, get in the mess and watch the gospel work. I'm, I'm built to lay on the ground weeping side by side with some of our church people as they go through tragedies. But, but what these pastors, and I know I'm being cryptic because some of you know them. But what they're saying is true. When they tell me, Kyle, church members don't call me with good news. It's always bad news. It's they never want to meet with me and tell me I I appreciate what you're doing. They only want to meet with me to tell me they're leaving or they're complaining. Write a poll this week and say, Dear pastor, your labor is not in vain. You're in a spiritual battle. This too will pass. But until it does, Go deep with Christ. It's your only way of survival. Pastors need encouragement. And I know what you're thinking, like they need to man up and be like Paul. Maybe. But they don't treat you like that when you need it. One, pastors need encouragement. Let's let's move far away from that. Two, pastors can have warped reasons for preaching the gospel. Pastors can have warped reasons for preaching the gospel. Some preach sincerely, verse 16. Some preach selfishly, verse 17. Friends, this is reality. Some pastors want to promote themselves, build a platform. They have a competitive streak in them, they like to hear when other churches are getting smaller so that they can get bigger. Bible teachers sometimes trash other Bible teachers because they're jealous. You have to understand, pastors aren't above sniping and hinting and denigrating. There are times when, when you will see a pastor and you will see the disgusting, naked ambition. But you will see him preaching Christ. And so you'll just say... I rejoice when Christ is preached. Now, there are other times we must call out something that is anti-Christ, anti-gospel. And that's why a theological triage panel that we put online is so important. It tears where things are. Paul had a theological triage. This passage confirms it. Now, some of you are not Christians. And you're like, what did I just walk into today? I, I walked into a lot of insider talk today. Some of you are not Christians, and here's what you need to pull away from this text. We are willing to be falsely accused, ran over, jailed, and even killed so that the gospel will advance to reach your ears. We are obviously an imperfect people. You've seen that today in the text, but we walk with a perfect Savior who is molding us into His image. Friend, you need this Christ. You need this Christ because you don't have to you don't have to you don't have to put up those faux walls anymore. You're comfortable in your own skin because you're comfortable in Christ. Dear non-Christian, drop your sins and run to this Christ today. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church.